This message first aired on the radio on September 12, 2003. We're studying an overview of the Scripture, the dispensations of God. We have found that this is a way, maybe perhaps the only way, to enjoy the Scripture is to rightly divide it and to give you an outline so that as you read the Bible, you have convenient hooks upon which to hang your thoughts. And the outline of Scripture uh, that we find in it by dividing out the dispensation we find are at least some convenient hooks. Now, we've been studying, as we go through the eight dispensations of God, seven in some detail, we've been studying the fifth dispensation, which is the dispensation of the law, and which is a very large dispensation, from the time of the birth of Israel until the end of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he walked on earth, let's just say until the Lord Jesus Christ's ascension, and then very possibly we could even extend it out to the end of the book of Acts, but that will take up at a later time. We now break the dispensation of the law into four pieces, the inaugural section where the law is given under Moses and Joshua, and then we have the period of the judges, which we've just completed, and then we have the period of the kings, and then we have the period of the prophets. And we're being introduced at this time to a section that has to do with really the transition period from the judges or saviors. Remember, judges are saviors uh, from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And in that transition, we find two men marking it. We find Eli, who's a high priest of the family of Aaron. And our last time that we studied this, you you may remember if you were listening, that Eli's sons were going to be judged of God. God had a, a fight with them. God was a, wanted to slay them because of their evil behavior. And he will do that. God will do that. And we remarked, and I want to repeat it, that when you act in hostility to God, when you insist on your own religion in place of God's religion, when you... Uh, insist on your wicked ways in the place of God's command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in the way of faith in his word, when you insist on that, you are fingering God in the chest. You are poking God in the chest. You are slapping God in the face. And God is not beyond bringing judgment to you. God is not beyond the intention due to that kind of behavior. God's not beyond that. Now, It's his strange work. Judgment, bringing judgment is his strange work. He doesn't want to do it. God is one to avoid a fight at all costs, though you pick one. Though you are an enemy against him in your mind by your wicked works, he's slow to anger, he's quick to mercy, but the fact that he's slow to anger does not mean that God is never angry. In fact, the Bible teaches us God is angry with the wicked every single day, every moment. Every second, God is angry with the wicked. Though slow to anger and though slow to bring about that strange work, finally he will do it. And when Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, being wicked fellows, supplanting the faith that God has for their own wicked ways, they poke him in the chest long enough that he decides to bring them to an end and to slay them. And uh, that's what we're going to take up at the beginning right here today. 
we're going to take up what God does to Israel in light of the corrupted religious practice of the day. And if you were to ask me what is the most evil thing that's going on in the world today, I would look at the house of God, the ostensible house of God, Christian churches who take up every kind of different agenda than the Word of God. That is the most wicked thing that I can find in America today. The most wicked thing I can find is the failure of Christian churches to hold the faith. That is uh, wickedness beyond uh, all other wickedness that you can name. And I know that people have a sophisticated knowledge of evil today. Of course, the Bible doesn't really commend that we have that, but we do have in our society a sophisticated, detailed knowledge of evil. And we have a very light knowledge, a very thin knowledge, a very uh, superficial knowledge of the Scriptures. And what that means is that evil is cheap and it's easy to come by and that the Word of God is dear and it's hard to come by and so it's very expensive. But thank God we do have the Word of God. We even send it out across the airwaves in a way like this where we can talk about it. Now, what we have, we have an indulgent father named Eli, unfaithful man, but his sons are even more unfaithful because he is indulgent. God is bringing judgment. He brings a prophet. He raises up a prophet unnamed in Scripture to tell Eli, look, I'm going to slay your sons, and your family's going to come to an end and be paupers in Israel, and that's just the way it is with you. And then God begins to raise up another prophet to assist Israel, and that's Samuel as a young boy. And God doesn't speak to Eli anymore directly. He starts to speak to Samuel uh, directly. And now, instead of God raising up a deliverer, this is really an interesting thing. As we see the transition toward kingship in Israel, away from temporary deliverers and into the institution of kingship, we see that God really is turning Israel over to its own device. And God now is not hearing the cry of Israel, as Israel's not crying out to him, but he's actually going to bring to pass the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. So the tabernacle of Israel and the attendant Ark of the Covenant and the priesthood of Israel is going to be taken from it because Israel's so unfaithful in it. And there's a picture there that God will do that. When Israel was unfaithful, uh, God took their tabernacle from them and gave it to the Philistines, and then he judged the Philistines for not handling it properly. God set Israel has got in this present day in which we live. God has set Israel aside for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and being unfaithful with the house of God. And today, the house of God is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the support of the truth. But as the church becomes unfaithful, uh, and that permeates the entire scene here below, God will take His testimony from the church and will again turn back to Israel, and we're going to see that happen. So we see God doing that. That's the way God is. This is the way God behaves, and he gives us his thoughts in the Scriptures. So now God has said he's going to judge uh, Eli's house, and he's raising up Samuel, and we come now to a portion in 1 Samuel chapter 4, as Samuel is now established to Israel as a prophet, and it tells us that the Philistines, in verse 2, the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, 
and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So now, this is a huge loss. 4,000 men are defeated by the Philistines. It should be that one Israelite puts to flight a 1,000 Philistines, so it would be that four Israelites should be able to put to flight 4,000 Philistines. But instead, 4,000 Israelites are killed by the Philistines. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, these are the old men of Israel, they said, Wherefore has the Lord smitten us today, today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwells between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What means the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us! For there has not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us! Who will deliver us out of the hands of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, here's an interesting viewpoint that the Scripture gives us. Here Israel has become complacent, presumptuous, in fact, superstitious. They now are not putting their faith in God. They're not putting their faith in the God who speaks and who covenanted with them. They are placing their faith in the symbolic presence of God in their midst. And when I say the symbolic presence of God, they are more concerned about the Ark of the Covenant than the Covenant. They are more concerned about the Ark of the Covenant. They are putting their trust superstitiously in the Ark of the Covenant and not the God who spoke the word of the covenant. And that's very possible to do. Today, for example, you can find a complete preoccupation by Christians with their ministry or with their church. And let me tell you that my ministry your ministry, my church, your church, is what we like to talk about because it's all about ourselves. And we're, uh, in the lust of our flesh, very desirous about all about ourselves. But are we occupied with God himself? No, we're not. And so today, Christians will do almost anything but meditate and study God's Word. They will do almost anything. You can get groups of Christians to do all kind of things, and they'll even do some of these kind of superstitious things, like this is. This is a very superstitious thing. Let's go get the ark, because our power is in the ark. They don't ask God. They don't care about God. And so here the elders of Israel have become one of those two awful things that old men can become. What are those two awful things? Let me remind you. Old men can become foolish old men. That's an awful thing. 
more awful than that. They can become wicked old men. Well, these fellows are foolish old men, and when the Lord Jesus Christ comes at the at the end of this dispensation, we're going to see that Israel is run by wicked old men, indeed by children of the devil himself. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here now we have quite a situation. The children of Israel bring the Ark of the Covenant into their camp, and they're as excited as 78,000 red-clad fans in Lincoln, screaming and yelling because they now have all the symbols of their victory. They have the Sears trophies that they've accumulated. They have the Red Stadium. They have the Tunnel Walk music. They're all excited because of all the symbols, and they trust in their tradition and their symbols. But the fact is, it's really all about, well, if I say the players on the field, now that's not, I'm still trying to maintain some semblance of my Husker fast here. But uh, really the sum and substance of the thing is in the heart and ability of the players, isn't it? As uh, one would say, well, it's players, Michelle. So now the Philistines, on the other hand, are now afraid and they're intimidated by all of this shouting and by the history of the fact that God did smite the Egyptians. Now, they don't understand it quite right. They don't say it was the God of Israel. It just says Israel has greater gods than us, so we're in trouble. That's the way that heathens think. Israel has greater gods. Now, one of the most amazing verses in, in this section of Scripture, really one of the most amazing verses that you'll find in the books of the kings, all four of them, is in First Samuel chapter 4 and verse 9. Because here it reads, just listen to this. Be strong, and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men, and fight. This is the word of God to the Philistines. Out of the blue, God speaking to the Philistines. We have a picture here, by the way, that when Israel becomes totally unfit, God will take his word to the Gentiles. Now, he only does it here for a verse. But God takes his word to the Gentiles here for one verse, to the Philistines, and he encourages the Philistines. God becomes Israel's enemy. God is on the side of Israel's enemies. I remember hearing from my father and his friends and uh, also others involved in the Second World War. There was no doubt in this country that God was on the side of America. In fact, my entire youth, growing up, I never once doubted that God was on our side. But you know what? Now I wonder. Now I'm not sure God's on our side. Let me put it this way. I'm not sure we're on God's side. In many, many occasions. I'm, in fact, in certain occasions, I'm sure we're not on God's side. We're against God in so many ways. Well, here, God turns from Israel to the Philistines. And then verse 10, And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, and the ark of God was taken. So the Philistines came in, routed the Israelites, took the Ark of the Covenant, 
and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain in the same day, just as God said. Now, isn't that an amazing, isn't that an amazing teaching that we have here? We're going to come back and see what the implications of that are right after this word. And now we continue to discuss this period of time where Israel is defeated. And notice that the priests are killed, the ark is taken, they lose their priesthood, they lose the house of God. Now, many people think that you cannot lose the house of God. Somehow uh, they become superstitious like the children of Israel and believe that no matter how a church conducts itself, it is still the house of God, the pillar of support of the truth. doesn't have to have any truth in it. can be all about lies, can be immoral, can conduct itself foolishly, can have nothing to do with the living head, our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet still they, the people uh, that attend or that are so-called members believe that they're the church of God. Well, they're not. And we are only the church of God if we continue steadfastly in the faith. The book of Hebrews teaches that in the third chapter. Whose house are we if we continue steadfast? And most do not continue steadfast, and most Things called churches today are not the church of Jesus Christ, which is his body. I don't say none are. I say most are not. And no right-minded, right-thinking Christian could see it any other way. So that's actually not something I care to really argue about. I'll certainly say it, but I'm not going to argue about it. Well, not only do Eli... Uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die. But when the word comes to uh, Eli, a messenger comes, a man of Benjamin, he comes. He comes, it tells us in verse 13 of First Samuel 4, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. This is a pathetic situation, this helpless old man watching the demise of Israel and watching the demise of his own family and watching the demise of his own self. What a pathetic condition. So many Christians in this pathetic condition, frozen because they no longer act in faith. Frozen faithlessly. That's Eli. When Eli came into the city and told that the ark was gone, the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What means the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli, Eli is even the last guy to know. And Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim, and he could not see. And that's no kidding. And the man said to Eli, I am he that came out of the army and fled today out of the army. He said, What is there done, my son? Verse 17. And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken, just as was prophesied. To Eli, And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, Eli knew that the sons were going to die, but when the messenger made mention of the ark of God, that he, Eli, fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died, for he's an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. It's true, but this judge didn't deliver Israel. This judge led Israel into the loss of the house of God. What a pathetic scene. What a sorry scene. My heart goes out here. But it's pathetic. It's pathetic. 
And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed. She went into labor pains. And about the time of her death, she died giving birth. The women that stood by said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. She didn't even get the joy that a son was born and forget the labor pains she gave no regard to it. She named the child Ichabod. That is to say, the glory, where, it's a question, Ichabod, where is the glory? And what glory is this? This is the Shekinah glory. This is the visible presence. This is the visible glory of God that graced the tabernacle when God was dwelling with Israel. And now the ark leaves, and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, leaves Israel with it. And this is the one of two occasions where the Shekinah glory leaves Israel. This is a temporary leave. The Shekinah glory, the visible glory, the bright brightness of light that marked the tabernacle will come back here as we look into the time of the kings when Solomon's temple is built. The Shekinah glory will visit that temple. But here the Shekinah goes. And so she names her son after the event Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel, she says, because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. And so now we see what really happened is the glory of God leaves Israel and the ark of God goes to the Philistines. Now the Philistines take the ark of God, and I won't read all about it, But the Philistines take the Ark of God, and they bring it into the house of their god, Dagon. And they set it next to their their god as a gift to their god. So the Philistines, having heard the word from the god of Israel that encouraged them, now insist on their own religion, and they now have decided that their gods were greater than the gods of Israel. So they take the Ark of the Covenant of the children of Israel, and they put it in their own temple And they insist now. Of course, God brought one verse of his word to the Philistines, but God had not taken the full counsel of his word to the Gentiles yet. That's something he does today. And so these heathens disgrace the God of Israel by taking the Ark of the Covenant and putting it next to Dagon. And now they have as if co-equal maybe with Dagon or maybe even subordinate to their fish god, uh, Dagon. And it's interesting what God does here. So they, and it reads nicely, let's just read it. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod rose early on the morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So God God is uh, talking in symbols here to the Philistines. He's letting them know some things. And overnight, God knocks down the Dagon statue. He's fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So now that's interesting symbolism. And here's a funny little verse, a funny little sentence. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And isn't that funny? This is what we do. We take the gods that we worship. We take the false gods that we worship, just like these Philistines do. This is how human beings do. Human beings create their own gods and actually place them up. Interesting how that is. 
they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone that came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. So now God knocks the statue down, breaks the head off, breaks the hands of their god off, their fish god Dagon, and they become superstitious. And they realize that they've got a big problems on their hand. This big problem on their, well, they've got a few problems, but they've got a very big problem. It is the ark of the God of Israel is going to destroy them, they decide. And why do they decide that? It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with hemorrhoids, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. Now, this is the English word for hemorrhoid, but it is not really a proper translation. That English word, hemorrhoid, is not really a good translation. It is not that the Philistines broke out with hemorrhoids. Uh, That, uh, though painful, not especially severe plague or anything like that. They are not smitten with hemorrhoids, but they are smitten with some kind of bulbous growth. That's really how it should read, that they were smitten with bulbous growths. Very possibly, this is something akin to the bubonic plague, which ravaged Western Europe during the Dark Ages. And, by the way, what made Western Europe dark? Why, it was the absence of the Word of God. What made... Western Europe dark was man-made religion, not particularly Dagonic religion, not the religion of the Philistines, but they're all the same. It was the religion of Rome that made Western Europe dark and the absence of God's word. And so that's what the Dark Ages were. And what brought Europe out of the Dark Ages? Well, it wasn't the Enlightenment. That was a falsely called, that was just the old same darkness of heart of intellectual pride of man that I'm sure the Philistines had. What brought Israel out of the Dark Ages was the Word of God, the Bible. Of course, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overpower it. The Word of God is the only source of light on earth. So anything that is light, anything that is light is of God and is according to His Word. Nothing against God's Word is light. When people say, well, we have new evidence that shines different light on the Scriptures and denies it, that is not light, that is darkness. Well, we could go into the epistemology of man according to God, but we won't, other than to say God's Word is true and everything else that doesn't corroborate it is false. Now, these have a great plague breaking out on them, and they know in their superstitious way, they realize, of course, they've got the evidence that their God's getting knocked around in his, in his own house. And so the Philistines now, they say, they sent therefore and gather all the lords of the Philistines unto them. Verse 8 of First Samuel 5, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emrods in their secret parts, these bulbous infections, and in their secret parts. So God smites a people with a disease, a horrible disease, 
in their private parts. That's something God has done in the past. God has sent diseases upon people for the rejection of himself. He has done that. That's the kind of God he is. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go again to its own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was heavy there. And the men that died not there were smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and diviners, saying, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Now, the Philistines say, Well, put a, a trespass offering into the Ark and send it back. And they say, Make some uh, emeralds of five emeralds of gold and five golden mice. And here we see somehow mice associated with these emeralds, which is why it very well may have been something exactly like the plague, the bubonic plague, because it appears that God used mice in this plague also, and that they were possibly the carriers of the plague. So that does hearken for us back to the bubonic, to what we think we know about the bubonic plague. And so there are five lords of the Philistines, and they send back five, they stick in five golden emeralds and five golden mice, and they make images of their emeralds and their mice, and they send it back to Israel in a cart. They say, now therefore take a new cart, take two milch cows on which there has not come any yoke, and tie the, tie the cows to the cart, and bring their calves home from them, and take the ark of the Lord, and lay it upon the cart, and put the jewels of gold which you return him for a trespass offering, and send it away that it may go. And so these superstitious Philistines now send the ark of the covenant back to Israel in a cart, and it goes to Kirjath-Jerim, and the ark of the Lord goes into the house of Abinadab, and there it sets for a while. In fact, it sits there for 20 years. And so this is the pathetic state that Israel's come in. Now they have the Ark of the Covenant back, but it's no longer in Shiloh. They have the Ark of the Covenant back. They are in a state of spiritual decline. Samuel has now risen to the place of prophecy, of prophet in Israel. Samuel is now the judge of Israel. He will steer them correctly, and so he tells them, if you will return to the Lord, it speaks to all the house of Israel, First Samuel 7, verse 3, if you'll return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away from you the strange gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, there's those Ashtaroth, those phallic, that phallic religion, their sexual immorality, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord God only. And so now Samuel gathers all Israel to Mizpah. And Israel is repented and says, We have sinned against the Lord. And the lords of the Philistines still are in enmity against Israel. And the children of Israel are still afraid of the Philistines, especially because they've been whipped up on by them. 
they now say to Samuel in verse 8, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines, which God already told through Samuel that he would do. And Samuel takes a sacrifice, and he assures the men of Israel. He t- it says in verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizpah and Shen, which is between the Israelites and the Philistines, and he says, Hitherto God has helped us, and he calls the name of it Ebenezer, and that's what that word means. Ebenezer means, so far God has helped us. Actually, it means this is our stone of help. And, of course, God is the rock of help. And you remember all this problem came because they rejected the rock that begat them. Well, we'll take up a little bit more of this right after this brief interlude. Well, the children of Israel have been here before. You'd think now they've repented and they are crying to God and the Philistines are subdued. It tells us in 1 Samuel 7, so the Philistines were subdued. They didn't come into the coasts of Israel anymore. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And so Samuel's bringing victory. He is a deliverer. You'd think that maybe this guy is the solution or... Are they just committed to this repetitious turning away their entire history? Is this just going to be the way it is? Well, it tells us that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and it came to pass that when he was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And so now maybe we have the primogenitor that they need, where judges don't have to rise up. Maybe they've now got circumstance where God has a line of faithful men who will just, and the rulership will come out of Samuel's house. Well, that can't happen. Samuel's a Levite. The rulership can't come out of, out of Levi. The rulership has to come out of Judah. So he now makes his sons the judges over Israel. The firstborn name was Joel, the second one Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba in the south portion of Israel. But here's what the Bible says about those fellows. His sons walked not in his way, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Now that is such a way that it is when men not appointed of God rise to rulership in the house of God. What do they do? They take money, and they pervert judgment. They take bribes. They pervert judgment for rich guys. That's what they do. Do you know today, by the way, God commands Christians not to have civil torts against each other. That hasn't changed. That's laid out in the Scripture, said you shouldn't take your torts. That's not criminal activity. Now, that is civil claims. That Christians, when they have civil claims against each other, ought to take their civil claims up in the church, which is the house of God, the pillar of support of the truth. And to find a jury in a church, there's no problem. To find a group of people to judge the matter should be no problem, for even the one who is the least esteemed in the church ought to be qualified to judge the matters of this life. What? Don't you know, says 1 Corinthians 6, that we are going to judge angels? So much, how much easier is it for us who are destined to judge angels? if we remain faithful. How easy is it for us, therefore, to judge the simple matters of this life, like multi-million dollar lawsuits, 
or even small lawsuits. And yet I can tell you this, that I have never seen judgment so perverted. And I've been in courts. Look, I've been in courts in Kenya. I've been in courts in America. I've been in, I've been in county court. I've been in municipal court. I've been in federal courts, uh, both in Omaha and in Lincoln. And I have never seen justice more. I've been in the Kenyan high court and in the Kenyan low courts, and I have never seen justice perverted more than it's perverted in Christian churches. Never seen it. Why is that? Because leaders of the church are after filthy lucre. They're after money. Now, you say, well, who are you to talk? I'm one experienced to talk. And we see in the Scripture that the sons of Samuel are ones who didn't walk in his way, but went the way of money. What's the number one problem in the church today? What's the number one problem in the house of God every day for all time? It's all about money. Hophni and Phineas were about money. Joel and Abiah are about money. And so many men are about money today. And yet, what do Christian churches do? Let me tell you what Christian churches do. They lose one man who's after money, called in the Bible a hireling, and they run right out and go hire somebody else. No different than the children of Israel, and, by the way, no different results. So, uh, no different result whatsoever. And so the elders of Israel have to go to Samuel, and they say, Look, uh, Samuel, you're an old guy, and you're off the scene here, but your sons, uh, they don't walk in your way. We need a king. The Gentile nations all have a king. Everybody around us has a king. Your sons aren't walking in your ways. We need a king. Give us a king like the Gentiles have. That's what we need. We need a king. Oh, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to him. Go ahead and give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to reign over them. They want some guy of their own choosing to reign over them. They've rejected me, and they have served other gods, and they're doing the same thing to you. Now, therefore, hearken unto their voice, verse 9, for Samuel 8, howbeit yet protest, protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of king that shall reign over them. So he says, you go along with them, you do what they want, but you warn them and tell them what they're going to have. What an awesome judgment that is. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifty. And he will set them to ear his ground, that is, to toil for him in his grounds, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he'll take your daughters to be confectionaries, to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he'll take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards, and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your sheep, and you'll be his servants. You're going to get a king, and he's going to take your children, and he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your fields, and he's going to tax you as much as 10%. 
He'll take as much as 10% tax on top of that. Well, today, we're in such blind bondage, friends, that we think that being in 30% tax is fine. My goodness, Social Security is over 15%. And do we realize our spiritual bankruptcy before God? No, we don't. Well, that's okay. Neither did the children of Israel. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, nope, but we'll have a king to reign over us so that we can be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We would rather have our own guy fight our battles than God. Well, they didn't reject Samuel. Indeed, just as the Lord said, they rejected God. And you know what? They're going to get themselves a nice seven-footer guy. They're going to get themselves a seven-foot guy to lead them, and he's going to be not totally unqualified, but substantially unqualified, and they're going to get a real bad result from that. And we'll look at that. In the meantime, listen to this, and may God bless you. 